All right, everybody, welcome back to episode number six of the Young and Successful podcast. I hope you liked episode number five. Tyler went into some details of how to build your own brand and how to build a reputation on social media. Received a lot of great feedback from that. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask, feel free to tweet at us or email us and let us know what questions you have. Episode number six today, I'm going to handle it on my own. Tyler is actually out of the state. He is on a vacation, a much needed vacation, I would argue for Tyler. Um, He's in Hawaii with his wife. They're just vacationing and celebrating life. He texts me and asked me if I could take the episode today. He's been working about 90 hour weeks. So I I was delighted and happy to do it. Um, Last episode, Tyler talked about something that he was kind of specializing in, which is social media marketing. Uh, Episode six, it's something that I get to choose. And I'm going to choose something that I think is applicable to everybody, whether or not you're in finance or uh, advertising or you're an employee, you're a scientist, whatever it happens to be, I think that this is something beneficial. It is a practice that I have learned from Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday, and it's something that helps me in every single aspect of my life, personal, uh, my career, my business. It helps me with my relationship with my wife, um, with my family, and with my friends. And the practice is Stoicism, and it's an ancient philosophy that has been around since the year 300 BC. And Stoicism is a philosophy, it's not a religion, it's a philosophy that anybody can practice, and it helps you and trains an individual in separating themselves and their emotional reactions from events that they can control and events that they cannot control. People that practice Stoicism are the ancient Roman philosophers. Uh, Zeno Zeno was the, the philosopher that created it, Epictetus, Uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, they were masters of Stoicism and the Stoic writings we have were created by them. But it's also been practiced in modern ages. Um, Most recently, the probably most popular Stoic is Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, probably the best football team in existence. Um, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington practiced Stoicism and he actually had a Stoic play performed for his troops when they were in a war one time. Um, So all these people of action focus on stoicism and they do that because stoicism is an operating system for creating better decisions. And Tim Ferriss has a very, very good TED talk on this. I highly recommend looking it up. Um, But it trains you on the ability to control your emotions. If you can control your emotions in certain situations, you will make better decisions in business, in life, with relationships. I have found it very, very applicable in relationships. Um, And it just makes you a better, more well-grounded, well-respected, calm individual. And it helps you increase the quality of your life. Because if you don't, you know, go berserk and go crazy over something that you can't control, no negative consequences from getting in a fight or losing your temper. Um, It really just helps you kind of make sure you know what is important and what isn't important. So to put this into perspective, a few ways Tim Ferriss illustrates that this could be applicable and if you practice stoicism, you would be better off. The first example is if you're a quarterback. Let's say you're a quarterback in a football game and you throw a bad pass and you just fly off the handle and you get down on yourself and you get depressed and you feel terrible. It could end up causing you the game. But what if you can control your reaction to that? You might be able to manage your your frustrations and channel your frustrations and become more dedicated and more disciplined and play a better game. 
The other application would be something like a CEO or a business owner freaking out at an employee and cursing them out, which could potentially lose that organization or that business could lose that employee. It would be a very, very terrible thing to have happen because that employee is a crucial part of the business, could end up causing them money, causing them the business itself. The other one I think is a little more personal. Tim Ferriss talked about his personal experience where he was in college and he was feeling very, very overwhelmed. He felt helpless, hopeless, terrible. And he actually was within a few, probably minutes of committing suicide. So stoicism was able to help him in a specific practice of stoicism called fear setting. So what I'm going to do is go over uh, a practice that Tim Ferriss has created called fear setting and show how it can be applicable to your life. And then I'm going to read you a few passages from one of my favorite books called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F-U-C-K, right? Um, written by Mark Manson, where he talks about coming to grips with the worst possible outcome. Um, and then you're able to live in that situation and make the best of it. So first off, to talk about the fear setting. Fear setting is a, a practice that Tim Ferriss came up with, and it has three parts. So you want to rip out three pages of paper, and on the first page, you want to write, what if I, and then dot, 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 this is where you will fill in the blank. So for an entrepreneur, it could be quit my job and start a business. So on this what if I page, there will be three sections, a section called define, a section called prevent, and a section called repair. And what you would do is you would walk through a model situation. And Tim Ferriss talked about how when he was first out of college, starting his very first business, he was working 40 hours a week minimum, sometimes upwards of 70 or 80 hours a week. And he was afraid to do anything else with his life. So his idea was, I need to take a vacation. This is killing me. It's killing my relationship. I'm terrified to leave but I need to, I know I need to. So what if I go on a vacation was the one that Tim Ferriss input. And then he listed under the define section, all of the different problems that could arise if he goes on vacation. And one of them was he could be audited by the IRS and receive a tax bill. Um, the other one was what if he goes on a vacation, but it's rainy and miserable the entire time he's there and he's more depressed than he was when he left. The second section is prevent. So this is where you, you address specific ways to prevent problems that could arise from leaving. So to the first one, what if he receives a letter from the IRS and he has to pay taxes and he's gone and he doesn't receive it? Well, he could forward his mail to his accountant, right? That's one way to prevent the problem. The other way to prevent the problem of option number two, what happens if it's rainy the entire time he's there? He said, well, he could take one of those tanning lights and make sure he's getting sufficient vitamin D from the sun, or maybe it's vitamin E, I don't remember which one to get from the sun. The other idea was he could hop on a plane or take a train down to the southern coast of Spain and get some sun there. And then the repair section, this is how you repair those problems that, that have occurred from going. So if you go through that and you make a list of all the potential problems that you think could potentially arise from making a move in your life, you can define them, you can prevent them and you can repair the damage that they have caused if they were to come about. Doing this, you intimately familiarize yourself with these problems and what could go wrong. So that's the first page. The second page, you take out, you get done doing the first page, you pull out the second page and you write on it, what are the benefits of an attempt or a partial success of this thing that I'm going to do? So what if he goes on a vacation 
and he's mildly successful at his vacation. Well, he'll feel relaxed. He'll have gotten some sleep. He'll have not focused on his business and his mind would be clear. And you make a list of all of the different things that could be accomplished by even attempting or achieving a partial success in this event, right? Um, so maybe it's you quit your job and you start a business. So what are benefits of an attempt at partial success? Well, if you quit your job and you start a business, first off, even if you attempt to achieve a moderate level of success, you'll be able to say that you've done it. You can add it to your resume. Uh, you would know how to actually start a business, how to open up an LLC, how to start accounting, um, how to network, how to call people, how to do cold calls. You could go through these different things and basically it's building a list and it, an itemized list of lessons and things that you would have learned and pieces of information and knowledge that were valuable to you that you would only get if you did this thing. Right? So that's you're in, in, um, becoming intimate with the potential that you have from just an attempt or partial success. And then the third page this is probably my favorite part. Um, the third page, you write the cost of inaction. And then you break it into three categories, six months, one year, and three years. And this is, if you do not do this thing that you are, are hoping to do, what is the cost to you? Six month cost, one year cost, three year cost, right? Um, for me, not starting a business, the six month cost would have been I was stuck in Utah and I wanted to get married to my wife who couldn't leave Idaho. The one-year cost, I would have been at a firm that I think is probably downsizing. And a three-year cost, I would have been stuck at this job using investments I didn't love, right? And you can go on and on, but you, you need to write down the cost of inaction. And this really helps individuals understand the atrocious cost of the status quo, right? So just staying the same is bad. You need to be constantly improving. And if you understand the cost of remaining the same and how uh, it grows exponentially over time, it will make you want to take action and do something. Um, so this really kind of breaks it down. This helps you familiarize yourself with this idea of being successful or you know, branching out and taking a chance. And if you can familiarize yourself with the fear, then you're not afraid of it. Then you're able to actually you know, ask for a promotion or relocate to a new city or change your major or drop out of college or go back to college or do whatever it is that you're afraid to do that you know will benefit you. And then sometimes you'll walk through these things and there won't be very many benefits of this action. And you'll think, well, I don't need to waste my time doing this. So it works in both the positive and uh, the way of limiting your decision. So it helps you make only decisions that are very valuable and worthwhile. So Tim Ferriss has a very good friend who's an Olympic weightlifter. He was a refugee. He is just a phenomenal, phenomenal individual. And his name is Jerzy Gar Gregorek, I think. Gregorek, something like that, from Europe. And uh, he has a quote. He's a Stoic philosopher, I guess you could say. He practices Stoicism. And his quote is, very simple, and I think it's very, very powerful. It's easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. Again, that's easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. And the idea here is that those hard decisions that you make end up being the ones that are most important and most valuable to you. And if you can learn to make the hard decisions, then your life will be much, much better. And he's practiced that, Tim Ferriss has practiced that, and as I have tried to practice Stoicism, although I have a long ways to go to become even 
kind of a sliver of what the ancient Stoics were, um, it certainly helped me out a lot. Um, I used to be very emotion driven as an individual and I've been able to control my emotions and realize what I can and cannot do as a uh, human being and what I can and cannot control. And so I've been able to come to grips. My, uh, my probably colleagues would say that I'm patient um, and I'm hoping that I can only increase my level of patience, my level of tranquility, my overall inner level of peace and I can be a joy to be around and be a very successful investor. It takes a lot of stoic uh, philosophy and abilities to be an investor, um, not just in the stock market and the whatever market you're investing in, but also in yourself, in any sort of long-term investing. So I think it's very, very beneficial. Okay, so now what I want to do is I want to read a couple passages in a book that I'm reading. Um, I've read it actually a bunch of times, listened to it a bunch of times on Audible. It's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Um, I'm not going to swear, but you'll, you'll get the point. And it's by Mark Manson. And he has a very lighthearted way of teaching us that you need to come in into contact and be comfortable with your fears and your shortcomings. And if you are comfortable with those things, that will allow you to reach higher levels of success. So in the book, the part that I'm going to read, he's talking about if he could create a superhero, who it would be and what that superhero would do. So he says, if I could invent a superhero, I would invent one called Disappointment Panda. He'd wear a cheesy eye mask and a shirt with a giant capital T on it. That way, oh, that was way too small for his big panda belly. And his superpower would be to tell people harsh truths about themselves that they needed to hear but didn't want to accept. He would go door to door like a Bible salesman and ring doorbells and say things like, sure, making a lot of money makes you feel good, but it won't make your kids love you. Or, if you have to ask yourself if you trust your wife, then you probably don't. Or, what you consider friendship is really just your constant attempts to impress people. Then he'd tell the homeowner to have a nice day and saunter on down the house, down the road to the next house. It would be awesome, and sick, and sad, and uplifting, and necessary. After all, the greatest truths in life are usually the most unpleasant to hear. A disappointment panda would be the hero that none of us would want, but all of us would need. He would be the proverbial vegetables to our mental diet of junk food. He'd make our lives better, better despite making us feel worse. He'd make us stronger by tearing us down, brighten our future by showing us the darkness. Listening to him would be like watching a movie where the hero dies in the end. You love it even more despite making you feel horrible because it feels real. So while we're here, allow me to put on my disappointment panda mask and drop an unpleasant truth on you. We suffer for the simple reason that suffering is biologically useful. It's nature's preferred agent for inspiring change. We have evolved to always live with a certain degree of dissatisfaction and insecurity because it's the mildly dissatisfied and insecure creature that's going to do the most work to innovate and survive. We are wired to become dissatisfied with whatever we have and satisfied by only what we do not have. This constant dissatisfaction has kept our species fighting and striving and building and conquering. So now our own pain and misery aren't a bug of human evolution. They are the feature of it. Pain, in all of its forms, is our body's most effective means of spurring action. Take something as simple as stubbing your toe. If you're like me, when you stub your toe, you scream enough four-letter words to make Pope Francis cry. You also probably blame some poor, inanimate object for your suffering. Stupid table, you say, or maybe you even go so far as to question your interior design philosophy based on your throbbing foot. What kind of idiot puts a table there anyways? Seriously. But I digress. That horrible stub toe-induced pain... 
the one you and I and the Pope hate so much exists for an important reason. Physical pain is a product of our nervous system, a feedback mechanism to give us a sense of our own physical proportions, where we can and cannot move and what we can and cannot touch. When we exceed those limits, our nervous system duly punishes us to make sure that we pay attention and never do it again. And this pain, as much as we hate it, is useful. Pain is what teaches us what to pay attention to when we're young and careless. It shows us what is good for us versus what is bad for us. It helps us understand and adhere to our own limitation. It teaches us not to mess around near hot stoves or stick metal objects into electrical sockets. Therefore, it's not always beneficial to avoid pain and seek pleasure since pain can, at times, be life or death important to our well-being. But pain is not merely physical. As anyone who has had to sit through the first Star Wars prequel can tell you, we humans are capable of experiencing acute physiological pain as well. In fact, research has found that our brains don't register much difference between physical pain and psychological pain, between physical pain, uh, oh, be, between physical pain and psychological pain. So when I tell you that my first girlfriend cheating on me and leaving me felt like having an ice pick slowly inserted into the center of my heart, that's because, well, it hurt so much, I might as well have had an ice pick slowly inserted into the center of my heart. Like physical pain, our psychological pain is an indication of something out of equilibrium, some limitation that has been exceeded. And like our physical pain, our psychological pain is not necessarily always bad or even undesirable. In some cases, experiencing emotional or psychological pain can be healthy or necessary, just like Stubbing our toe teaches us to walk into fewer tables. The emotional pain of rejection or failure teaches, how, teaches us how to avoid making the same mistakes in the future. And this is what is so dangerous about a society that coddles itself more and more from the inevitable discomforts of life. We lose the benefit of experiencing healthy doses of pain, a loss that disconnects us from the reality of the world around us. You may salivate at the thought of a problem-free life full of everlasting happiness and eternal compassion. But back here on earth, the problems never cease. Seriously, problems don't end. Disappointment Panda just dropped by. We had margaritas, and he told me about it. Problems never go away, he said. They just improve. Warren Buffett's got money problems. The drunk hobo down at the Quickie Mart's got money problems. Buffett's just got better money problems than the hobo. All of life is like this. Life is essentially an endless series of problems, Mark, the panda told me as he sipped his drink and adjusted the little pink umbrella. The solution to one problem is merely the creation of the next one. A moment passed, and then I wondered where this talking panda came from. And while we're at it, who made these margaritas? Don't hope for a life without problems, the panda said. There's no such thing. Instead, hope for a life full of good problems. And with that, he set his glass down, adjusted his sombrero, and sauntered off into the sunset. Problems are a constant in life. When you solve your health problem by buying a gym membership, you create new problems, like having to get up early to get to the gym on time, sweating like a meth head for 30 minutes on an elliptical, and then getting showered and changed for work so you don't stink up the whole office. When you solve your problem of not spending enough time with your partner by designating Wednesday night, date night, you generate new problems, such as figuring out what to do every Wednesday that you both won't hate, making sure you have enough money for nice dinners, rediscovering the chemistry and spark you two feel you've lost, Problems never stop. They merely get exchanged and or upgraded. Happiness comes from solving problems. The key word here is solving. 
if you're avoiding your problems or feel like you don't have any problems, then you're going to make yourself miserable. If you feel like you have problems that you can't solve, you will likewise make yourself miserable. The secret sauce is in the solving of the problems, not in not having problems in the first place. To be happy, we need something to solve. Happiness is therefore a form of action. It is an activity, not something that is passively bestowed upon you, not something that you magically discover in a top 10 article on the Huffington Post from any specific guru or teacher. It doesn't magically appear when you finally make enough money to add on that extra room to the house. You don't find it waiting for you in a place, an idea, a job, or even a book for that matter. Happiness is a constant work in progress because solving problems is a constant work in progress. The the solutions to today's problems will lay in the foundation for tomorrow's problems and so on. True happiness occurs only when you find the problems you enjoy having and enjoy solving. Sometimes those problems are simple. Eating good food, traveling to some new place, winning at the new video game you just bought. Other times those problems are abstract and complicated. Fixing your relationship with your mother, finding a career you can feel good about, developing better friendships. Whatever your problems are, the concept is the same. Solve problems, be happy. Unfortunately, for many people, life doesn't feel that simple. That's because they always mess things up in at least one of two ways. One, denial. Some people deny that their problems exist in the first place, and because they deny reality, they must constantly delude or distract themselves from reality. This may make themselves feel good in the short term, but it leads to a life of insecurity, neuroticism, and emotional repression. 2. Victim mentality. Some choose to believe that there is nothing they can do to solve their problems, even when they in fact could. Victims seem to blame others for their problems, or blame outside circumstances. This may make them feel better in the short term, but it leads to a life of anger, helplessness, and despair. People deny and blame others for their problems, for the simple reason that it is easy and it feels good, while solving problems is hard and often feels bad. Forms of blame and denial give us a quick high. They are a way to temporarily escape our problems, and that escape can provide us with a quick rush that makes us feel better. Highs come in many forms, whether it's a substance like alcohol, a moral righteousness that comes from blaming others, or the thrill of some new risky adventure. Highs are shallow and unproductive ways to go about one's life. Much of the self-help world is predicated on peddling highs to people rather than solving legitimate problems. Many self-help gurus teach you new forms of denial and pump you up with exercises that feel good in the short term, while ignoring the underlying issue. Remember, nobody who is actually happy has to stand in front of a mirror and tell himself that he's happy. Highs also generate addiction. The more you rely on them to feel better about your underlying problems, the more you will seek them out. In this sense, almost, in, almost anything can become addictive, depending on the motivation behind using it. We all have our chosen methods to numb the pain of our problems, and in moderate doses there is nothing wrong with this. But the longer we avoid and the longer we numb, the more painful it will be when we finally do confront our issues. I like this. I think that it is extremely powerful, and I have practiced this in my daily life. So I challenge each of you to practice this, run through the fear setting exercise that Tim Ferriss has, let us know how this is going, apply it into your daily lives, and I can promise you that it will be better. It's helped me out a lot, I continue to use it, and I foresee that I will continue getting better at it and trying my hardest to not let emotion dictate my life. Thanks guys, see you next week, bye.